Amen. Amen. Well, this passage, is a, it's a brief section. Paul has been setting forth the excellencies of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then now he's warning them. Many have said Paul seems to be anticipating the Gnostic movement that came up shortly after the apostolic era. It was actually active then. The idea of so this esoteric knowledge, you can gain insight into God. You can uh, you know, rise in your being and climb up the, the, the ladder of existence. And eventually, if you understand all the deep secret truths that only they could teach you, then you could achieve enlightenment and, and eternal life, etc., etc. And it was all a big lie. It was a way to take men and women away from Christ. And so Paul is addressing that because it definitely was in seed form. Now, there's an interesting thing. If you notice when we read this, Paul talks about the fact that we are complete in Christ, that Christ is exalted, that he is over all principality and power, that he is, as it says elsewhere, king of kings and lord of lords. Our enemies have been conquered. <laughs> but he starts off by saying in verse 8, beware. The, the Greek word there is just look, blepete. Blepo means to look. I love that word. It's like bleep, you know, on a screen. But blepo means I see. And this is the imperative form. He's telling them, be looking. Look out, we would say in colloquial language today. Look out. Have your eyes open. Now, why? All our enemies are defeated, aren't they? What's going on? Well, what he's telling them is don't be defeated by a conquered enemy. There's an interesting thing that happened. Weeks after the United States victory at Iwo Jima, if you've ever you know, you know, seen films about it or if you have had relatives that fought there you know, uh, or just heard of the story of Iwo Jima, it's when the Marines landed and it was the first island uh, that was actually considered part of Japan. And Iwo Jima was the, the, the bridgehead is where they were going to start. There was an air strip there. They knew from there they could fly in farther. The war was far from over. The United States Marine land, Marines landed. It was a bloody battle. And you know the very famous picture where the Marines are raising the, the United States flag on Mount Suribachi. Uh, and you know it's iconic and it won the, uh, I believe the Pulitzer Prize. Um, it was you know, quite, a, quite a photograph, but it represented the sacrifice and the deaths of many thousands of United States Marines. They were successful. They drove the enemy out. They, killed most of them. The Japanese weren't uh, ones to want to surrender. They considered that shameful. They occupied the island. They secured the airstrip. They repaired it because the United States had bombed the socks off of it uh, during the battle, but so they went in and repaired it. And if you know how they did that with the big plates, they'd lay them down, uh, iron steel plates, and then you know, make the runway smooth again. So they did that and everything was secure. Tents were pitched around the perimeter of the airfield. Everybody was like, basically now we've got R&R. &R. And then one night, gunfire was heard and there was slaughter in the camps because the men were relaxed, their weapons weren't nearby. There had been several hundred Japanese soldiers hiding out in caves. They had been defeated, but they didn't know that. And so they came out, and a lot of Americans lost their lives. I guarantee you, from then on out, there were guards posted every night and alert and in the daytime to make sure it didn't happen again. They were defeated by a conquered enemy. And how tragic it was for the folks at home to receive that letter that no one ever wanted to get or wants to get even now, telling them that they'd lost a son 
in combat on an island that was already conquered because the enemy was still active. And that's what we're looking at here. This is why Paul's saying, yes, we have the victory. Christ has conquered the world, as Jesus even told us. Remember? He said, in the world you shall have tribulation. He said, well, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That word overcome means to conquer. But yet he told us to be of good cheer. But here, by the Holy Spirit, we're told to be aware, look out, keep your eyes open, post a guard. You need to post a guard in your hearts, in your home, and in the church. We can't just relax and go, oh, well, the enemy is defeated. No, he, yes, he is defeated, but he's also still active. And we're in a place where the enemy is still on the loose. And we are to occupy. That means we're to preach the gospel and we're to do what we can by our prayers and ask God to do all that he can. Uh, it's not us, you know, getting God to work. God is at work. And the first thing he does when he's at work is puts it on the hearts of his people to pray. So that happened. It was a, it was a tragedy. So we need to remember the victory at Iwo Jima, but also the tragedy that men were defeated by a conquered enemy. This has happened so often in the history of the church because people have slept. Remember when Jesus told the parable of the field where the man sowed and then an enemy came at night and sowed tears in the field. In this world, the forces of darkness have been defeated, but they have not yet been completely removed. They're broken, but still dangerous. I remember hearing not too long ago about a man, I believe it was in Thailand, for some reason they, he was going to cook up a, a cobra, and they killed it, and the head of the cobra was sitting on a table, and it was dead, but somehow from nerves or whatever, just pure evil, I don't like snakes, particularly cobras, because they're so deadly, uh, the cobra had bit him, and he died from it. The head had been cut off of the snake. That cobra wasn't going anywhere, but it was still deadly. And that's when we look at this world, and that's why we can't just think like, well, it's okay for me to dabble in a little bit of sin, or it's okay for me not to be too, as, we, as the Bible uses the term, circumspect. That means paying attention to the things around you. Um, I don't need to worry about that, because we have victory. But well, we do have victory. You should be celebrating it. You can thank God. But keep your eyes open. That's what Paul's saying here, okay? Beware, and he tells us what it is. Now, the depraved hearts of unregenerate men still spew forth their wicked theories and philosophies. And they do that to, um, to snare the hearts and minds of every new generation. If you look at all the, from the time Paul wrote, look at all the history, all the philosophies that have come up. You know, you look in this, uh, the Reformation came, wonderful. And then you had, on the heels of the Reformation, you had, quote, the Enlightenment. If you're not familiar with the Enlightenment, I can tell you quite simply what it was. It was a movement, an intellectual movement that affected the churches. But the idea was, you know, you had men that grew up in societies where the gospel had been triumphant. In Europe, the gospel had been preached. People had been saved. Then they raised up their children and grandchildren. Eventually, people looked around, and the, the Enlightenment were the guys saying, men aren't that bad. What's all this Calvinistic talk about total depravity? People are pretty nice. You know, everybody, you know, they don't have to tell them to keep God's commandments. They kind of do it on their own. Well, that's because their generation has been brought up in families where moms and grandmas and dads and grandpas were teaching their children the Ten Commandments and people were honest in their dealings. But then you had, you know, the devil comes along and says, look, everybody, man's basically good. And decide that you need the Bible to know truth? Oh, come on. We know what's right and wrong, don't we? Come on, everybody. We know the truth. You don't need to read the Bible to know what's right and wrong. Well, they're speaking to a generation that's been brought up in a, in a 
Bible-saturated culture. So it looked like everybody does know what's right and wrong to do. And so the Enlightenment was basically this, that men can know truth apart from God's word. That's all it was. That's where it started. That we can know truth without scripture. We don't have to see what God has said. Now if you think about where did this start? If you do read the Bible, you know it started in Genesis chapter 3, didn't it? Remember when the devil came to Eve? Let's take a quick look at that because this is such a foundational passage in understanding how God works, his word and everything else, and how the devil works. In Genesis chapter 3, this is, why, do, why am I turning this? Because this is what Paul's talking about in Colossians. Okay, We read, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field. The old King James says subtle, very deceptive. Okay, Now at this time there was no sin in the world, so it says cunning, it means it was pretty tricky. Okay, But the devil got a hold of the serpent. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God... Indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Know what the devil does. God never said that. The devil comes and says, God said, you can't eat of every, you're not allowed to eat all the, all the fruit. You're, you can't, God doesn't let you do anything, does he? He's so mean. So first thing he does is cast doubt on the goodness of God. He misquotes God. Well, that's going to come up in a second. If you know the passage, you know where this is going, don't you? He says, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? God is holding you back. Look at this. You're not allowed to eat from every tree in the garden. There are certain things you're not supposed to be doing. Who does God think he is telling you that? And so Eve, she's there. Her husband's nearby, but apparently he wasn't necessarily privy to the conversation. Doesn't say that he was. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay, now there's a couple things here. If you've heard me talk about this before, others, you know what has happened. God never said they couldn't touch it. She's adding on to scripture. She's making what God said more restrictive than what it actually was. All God had told Adam was, <coughs> you're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Eve says, we're not allowed to eat it, and we're not allowed to touch it. God never said that. And then she said, lest you die. Well, that, the Hebrew word that's translated lest there, that's not surely you shall die. That's perhaps, okay? It's the Hebrew word pen, okay? That little word P-E-N uh, doesn't mean like in English, an ink pen, but it's the word for perhaps. So the, the, the judgment, the consequences of sin... It's just made a possibility. It's not anything to really worry about. You know, probably we won't die. But God says you might die if you do this. So there's some danger involved. That's not what God said. Okay? Now, it is interesting because the devil has gotten Eve now to paraphrase God's word. Or as I would say, he got her to give it forth in a crummy translation. You guys hear me harping about that all the time, okay? What you're reading is going to affect your life. If you're reading a bad translation... You're getting a watered-down version. And when people say, oh, it's so much easier to read. Well, okay, sometimes it's easier because it's actually in colloquial English, what we speak. So that's okay. Nothing wrong with that. But sometimes it's easier because they've watered it down. If you remember in 2 Peter, Peter talks about Paul's epistles, and he said in many things that Paul's writer are hard to be understood. Well, if you've got a Bible where everything that Paul wrote is easy to be understood, 
somebody's messed with what Paul wrote because Paul wrote things difficult to understand. He's got some long run-on sentences in the Greek where he's trying to find. I remember when we were, when I was in seminary, we were told, find in Ephesians chapter 1 when it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, etc., etc. One of the things we were told, and it goes on for like 14 verses, I think. And our Greek professor told us, second year Greek, by the way, he said, find the main verb. That's what you do when you're preparing a sermon. What's the main thing he's saying? And we went through, we went through, and we could not find the main verb. And we're like, what on earth is going on? And he had fun with us. That was Dr. Herter, beloved man. He's with Jesus now. Um, Dr. Herter then finally told us, he said, gentlemen, the main verb is understood. <laughs> it's the verb to be. Blessed be the God and Father. And in Greek, you don't have to put the verb to be in the sentence. You can just, there's a construction where it's not there. And we were like, you had us racking our brains on this thing for a better part of a week, and you knew that all He goes, oh, yeah. So you guys need to understand, you got to take Scripture as it comes. We didn't paraphrase it, though, and it was difficult. Paul wrote things hard to understand. Eve makes it pretty simple, doesn't it? But I want you to notice something here. Eve paraphrases what God said. The devil isn't interested in overthrowing her crummy translation. He's happy that she has it. Note what he says to her, then verse 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Whoa, where'd this come from? You've never said that. That's what God had said. The day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. That's what God said. That never came up in his conversation with Eve until he said it, because the devil's more interested in making sure she does not have access or trust or faith in the real, true revelation of God where he has spoken. He wants her to doubt God's goodness, he wants her to doubt God's word. By the way, the two things always go together. So we learn something here. How does the devil work? He takes scripture and he twists it. He leaves little bits out. Remember when the devil was trying to get Jesus to jump off the pinnacle of the temple? We've talked about that before, right? Because Jesus had rebuked Satan twice before, I believe, uh, by quoting scripture. Turn these stones into bread. It is written. It stands written, literally. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God, or proceeds from the mouth of God. We took him up on a high hill, showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He was lying. He said, I can give you all this glory and power and authority. Maybe he could, maybe he could. And the devil's a liar, okay? Jesus said, uh, you only to worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. But before Jesus said that, he said, it is written. So when he takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple, Tells him, jump down, everybody will see you. Again, I pointed out, if you read the mission, it's very clear that there was a stairwell that went from the ground up to the pinnacle of the temple, the very top. So there's no need to jump, <laughs> okay? You can take the stairs. But the devil's trying to get him to jump off. Hey, everybody will see you. You're the Messiah. You come floating down. Won't that be great, okay? And Jesus said, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. But before Jesus said that to him, with the devil, he quoted scripture. He said, go ahead and throw yourself out, for it is written, he will give his angels charge over you so that you don't dash your foot against a stone. He quoted scripture. The devil can quote the Bible, but because he hates God and hates God's people and hates God's word, he never gets it quite right because he left out part of it. The part he left out was to keep you in all your ways. And I've talked about that before. That means when you're where you're supposed to be, doing what you're supposed to be doing, when you're supposed to be there doing it, you can trust that God will keep you in all your ways. 
But if you're leaping off buildings or you're putting yourself in unnecessary danger and you're doing all kinds of stupid stuff because you don't know the Bible and you don't, you know, understand the brevity of life and the dangers that are around us, you're liable to get really hurt, okay? And the devil misquoted scripture. He left that part out. So he could quote scripture, but he could never quite get it right. He just left a little bit out. That's why Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's why you'll hear me, you know, kind of, some might say, go off when you have Bibles that drop off verses that have been in the text for centuries that are part of the preserved word of God. And a lot of modern Bibles will drop out like First uh, John 5, 7, the three heavenly witnesses or they changed 1 Timothy 3.16. Instead of saying God was manifested in the flesh, pretty powerful. He who was manifested, who's, who are we talking about here? The, the, the modern versions changed that. And it's based on some really poor manuscript authority. They found some old Greek manuscripts who were in Egypt. They go, ah, look, these read different. Well, yeah, Egypt was a nest of, you know, of Arianism and Gnosticism. Of course, their manuscripts read different because the early church fathers even tell us that the Gnostics and the Arians were changing the manuscripts every chance they could. And if you wanted the authentic word of God, you needed to go among the Orthodox people that believed God's word, had received the gospel from the apostles, and where those manuscripts were copied, that was the authentic word. And that's what's in the Texas Receptus. That's why I use the King James, Geneva Bible, and New King James, because that's based on the old Reformation Texas Receptus. It represents what's actually in the manuscripts and has been in use among God's people for centuries. All right, that's a lot to say. Why, do we, why am I going into that? Because Paul is rebuking the, the philosophers of his day. He's not against constructing a Christian philosophy. You notice verse 8. He says, beware lest anyone cheat you. Notice, these, they're taking, they'll take something away from you. Your peace. Your confidence in God. Don't let anybody cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men. So Paul's not saying you can't study philosophy. He can't say there's no such, he doesn't say there's no such thing as legitimate Christian philosophy. But he's saying there is a vain philosophy that's empty, empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world. You know, based on ge uh, you know, geometry and if you know anything about Euclidean uh, and uh, the uh, Pythagoras and others, you know, it all had to do with mathematics and measuring things, and it was their secret wisdom, and there were secret numbers that you could... It's all interesting, and there are some things that are amazing in mathematics, but they basically said, this is the truth where we can discover God or reality. Paul says, don't let that lead you astray. It's all according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. And notice, he doesn't say basic principles of the earth, so the world, the system of men, okay, where they want to exclude God. Why? Because in him, that is Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The full essence of what it means to be God dwells in Jesus Christ because he is, as to his person, joined to his divine nature. He is God with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He's not saying that everything that God is is the Son. He's saying that the Son is everything that God is. So is the Father. So is the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Trinity is a mystery above, not contrary to, but above human reason. We know God because he's revealed himself. And the first thing, remember, foundational truth of, of theology is that God is a different sort of being than we are. And so when people say, well, how can God do that? Well, how about if he says in his word, you know, it's because he's God. I was like, you know, the Muslims always say, well, God can't become a man. That's blasphemous. You know, well, man is made in the image of God, 
And God tells us in scripture that that's exactly what happened. God was manifested in the flesh. The word was with God and the word was God. And then verse 14 of John 1 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. When I read my Bible and the God of the Bible, quite clearly he can do whatever he wants to do. And that's what he did in time. He took on a human nature, joined it to the person of the second person of the Trinity so that he could be both God and man, so that he could bear our sins in his human body. It was created when he took to himself a body, you know, conceived by the Holy Spirit uh, and born of the Virgin Mary. In him, that is in Jesus. So Paul is pointing to Christ. He says, you don't need to be running off to all these worldly philosophies. They're just going to lead you astray. In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You want to develop a philosophy? Then you need to develop a theology of Christ, who he is. And you are complete in him. You've got everything you need. You don't need to go run around, oh, I need to find more. I've got Jesus, but now I need to understand uh, all these, you know, these deep truths of these other religions or of these other philosophies, etc. Paul says you're complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. All these demonic forces and all these things that you want to lead you astray, Christ rules over them. He's sovereign over them. Why would you go running to those things? He's conquered them. That's your conquered enemy that you do not want to be defeated by. Then he says, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Some said, why does Paul bring this up? Well, because these people that were promoting false philosophies among them, or trying to, were also bringing in ceremonies. And Calvin points out that when Paul's talking about all this false philosophy and the traditions of men trying to pull people away, well, what do they pull them away to? Well, it's because they have some secret ceremonies, etc. And then some say, well, okay, circumcision, no secret about that. It's all over the Bible. The Judaizers were saying, oh, remember in Acts 15, unless you're circumcised and keep the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul opposed that the moment he heard it. And that's where the Jerusalem Council came back and said, Gentiles do not have to be circumcised. But there were some saying, oh, you need to do that. So Paul lets him know, you already have everything you need. You don't need to submit to this uh, ritual that's actually been done away with. He said, you've already been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So he's not talking about physical circumcision. He's talking about something that happens in the hearts. Remember, all through the Old Testament, the people of Israel were told, have your heart circumcised. What does that mean? That means the, the flesh needs to be removed. The power of sin in your life needs to be broken, cut off, taken away. And that's what he's saying. And that's exactly what it was. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. In other words, make a break with sin. You've already had this happen. If you're, Sin's still a powerful force in a Christian's life. It's an enemy. It's defeated. You know, we talk about the you know, Japanese soldiers hiding out on Iwo Jima. You know, we still have sin in our flesh. Our bodies have not yet been regenerated. Your body is still subject to sickness and death and all those things. And also because of the corruption of our, our nature, uh, we still have to contend with fleshly lust. And that affects our souls and our minds. Can and We've got to bring them, lead every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I love that word captive there. In Greek it means to lead by at the point of a spear. <laughs> okay. It means just that, lead captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. Paul's talking about our own thoughts and the thoughts of others. When someone comes with a philosophy or a doctrine, judge it by scripture, take it captive, lead it to the obedience of Christ. Remember the Bereans? 
they were more noble, it said, than the Thessalonians. They examined everything according to scripture, and, they, and, and it says, therefore many of them believed. If it's true doctrine, it won't fear examination. We find that sometimes in the neo-apostolic movement, I've actually had people say, well, you can't question what these apostles are now saying. You know, these men are raised up by God to be apostles. And if you question what they're saying, you could be blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So whatever they say, you have to accept. And I'm like, no. And why? Said, well, because the Holy Spirit who wrote the Bible tells me to prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. The Apostle John wrote and said, Believe not every spirit, beloved, but test the spirits whether or not they are of God. Every spirit that is confessing Jesus Christ as come in the flesh is of God. So that's one. Are they talking about Jesus Christ, him incarnate, who he is? Usually they're talking about the Holy Spirit, power, gifts, and all those kind of prosperity. But then John went on and said, and every spirit that does not confess, literally is not confessing. And the idea of the word confessing means freely confessing. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. If they're not confessing that, if that's not the main point of their message, something's wrong. He says, uh, is every spirit that doesn't confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And then he goes on and says, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming into the world. That is, the Antichrist is coming, and even now is in the world. He's talking about the spirit of Antichrist. So Paul, he's, not saying, he's saying those who make these claims, those who have messages other than the person and work of Jesus Christ. And there's a lot, by the way, you know, the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit. It talks about gifts, talks about graces, talks about how we're to live our lives, etc. And there's history and everything else. But the emphasis is always on Jesus. Okay? If you can't find Jesus in, the verse, in any verse in the Bible, you need to go back and look at it again. I mean, everything. Martin Luther said, you can preach Christ from the punctuation. <laughs> okay? uh, he said, it's all about Jesus. It really is. Because he's the living word incarnate. The Bible is the written word of God. It's the inscripturated word. Christ is the expression of the Father, the Son. He's revealed the Father. The Bible reveals God to us. Okay? Now, we're not, making, we're not deal for someone to say, oh, you're worshiping the Bible? I worship the God of the Bible, and I recognize the Bible as his word, and I love it, and it leads me to him. Because it tells me about Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. So Paul is warning them. He says, you've already had this happen. Then he talks about baptism. He says, you're buried with him in baptism. Now, personally, I think it's not talking about immersion there. Some of the Baptists was, ah, see, there's immersion. It's like, no, Paul uh, uses the word baptizo. It does not mean immerse. Okay? When Peter in Acts 2 described the baptism of the Holy Spirit, he repeatedly says, the Lord has poured forth this which you now see and hear. Because God had said, I will pour out my spirit upon my handmaidens, upon my servants, etc. God has exalted him. It says, uh, and he has shed forth, the same word actually used elsewhere for pour. He has poured forth this which you now see and hear. Pouring is a clear representation of baptism. I believe that's actually the way it should be done, obviously. And that's from scripture. I'm not talking about tradition or the way you know the church has done it. I believe that pouring is the proper mode for baptism, and it does symbolize burying because it brings a person under the water, okay? Um, but this isn't the place for a full discussion on the mode of baptism. We will get to that, though. But he says, you're buried with him in baptism, uh, in which you were also raised with him. Note that. You've been co-raised. He says, your, your baptism identifies you with what Jesus did when he was buried, and you've been co-raised. How did that happen? That means when he rose, you arose because he was legally representing you. When he rose, you were resurrected. 
Paul's saying this has already happened. The difference between circumcision and baptism, and Calvin points this out beautifully in his commentary on this passage, is that circumcision was given by way of promise. It looked forward to the regeneration of the Holy Spirit among all God's people and uh, the, the fullness of the work of Christ, that we would be born again. Okay, there was regeneration in the Old Testament, but the fullness of that's been explained and set forth uh, now very clearly. So circumcision pointed to something that was yet to come. And so he points out that it's, what was to come has come already. It's Jesus. He was circumcised on our behalf. He fulfilled all the ceremonial law. Notice here, we've been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Christ was actually physically circumcised. Remember on the eighth day when he went, they took him up to the temple? Christ's circumcision covers us. Someone says, well, you have to be circumcised. I already have been circumcised. They say, well, no, physically. Physically, I have. Will you have a scar? No, I don't have a scar. Jesus does. He's got a lot of other scars that he took for my behalf also. I'm circumcised by the fulfillment of the law, by what Jesus did for me. It's the circumcision of Christ. But I also belong to him. But baptism points to the present-day reality. So circumcision was a promise of something that's to come, which came. Baptism tells us what's going on right now as the gospel's being preached. And that is that sinners are brought to new life in Christ. They're brought out of a state of death into life. And so baptism speaks to the present tense. So we've been raised with him. God who raised him from the dead. In verse 13, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made a life together with him. And the Greek word, it's one word there. It's co-quickened. He's made you alive together. To make you alive together, that's one word in the Greek. With him. When Jesus rose, you rose. A long time ago, even before you existed physically. Having forgiven you all trespasses, Christ secured your salvation by securing forgiveness because he paid the price you couldn't. And then he says, and having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, that's all the ceremonial law, that was against us, which was contrary to us. It was enough to condemn us. He took it all away, wiped it away. And he, having taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, Christ died for our sins, all of our violations of God's law. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he took away everything the devil could ever use against you by way of you know, demanding your condemnation and damnation. There's nothing that can stand against you now. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he broke their power because he conquered death. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now, what is the antecedent of the word it? Because he triumphed over all the forces of darkness in it. It's the cross. That's the word that it refers back to. When Christ was crucified, we say, oh, he was made a spectacle to me. He was making a spectacle of the enemy. Because when, as Paul says, if they'd known what they had, were doing, the, the powers of this world would not have crucified the Son of Glory. But they did. Christ made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Why? Because when he died, remember what he said right before he yielded up his spirit? Two things. One, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. But prior to that, he shouted out. You know, the synoptic gospels tell us, tells, tell us that he shouted out. John tells us what he said when he shouted. It is finished. It is done. It is complete. Remember, it's in the perfect tense. It's historically completed, and the results of that continue on. That's where we are, beloved. We're part of that continuation. It is finished. 
And so he tells us we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to worry about worldly philosophies. But we do need to be alert because we have an enemy and that enemy is active. So we need to keep our eyes open. Well, how do you do that? Well, you buy Isaiah from Jesus, like it says in uh, Revelation chapter 3. You say, Lord, open my eyes. And then you go to the word of God. You know, I have to wear glasses. You know, this is a very simple illustration. A lot of you, we wear glasses. If I take my glasses off, I can see a certain distance. I can see the communion stuff really clear. But if I want to read my Bible, I have to put on my glasses. Okay? Spiritually, the Holy Spirit is your eyeglasses. Okay? He's the one that opens your eyes and helps you to see God's Word. The Word of God itself is the spectacle by which we look at ourselves and everything around us and see it clearly. And so we need to be on guard, and we need to keep our eyes open. That blepete. Keep your eyes open. Why? Because you don't want to be conquered. You don't want to be defeated by a conquered enemy. Recognize the enemy is conquered, but we're not home yet. It's still a dangerous place. Stay in your Bible. Try to get your Bible open. I guarantee you all kinds of stuff starts happening. huh? The, the hardest book to pick up and read is the Bible. Not because it weighs a lot, just because the world, the flesh, and the devil will uh, militate against that. There's something on the TV. Oh, there's a book I need to read, a magazine. Oh, I need to open my mail. Oh, I need to do this. Need to, need to check my email, okay? Uh, or see what's happening on you know, Facebook or whatever else it is that you might use that takes away your time. There's always something. It's like, oh, I, didn't, I forgot to read my Bible. So the enemy's got a vested interest in making sure you're separated from your sword. That's why you need to pray. Say, Lord, let me get back in your word. Okay, and that's why it's important to be in church when it's preached. If you can, be in Bible study. If you can't make it, then get your Bible open and study it on your own. But become students of the Word. The worst thing that you can have happen to you is to believe in a false Jesus. You say, what? Paul warned the Corinthians when he, he wrote to them. He said, I worry about you that you might believe in another Jesus. He said, if somebody comes among you and preaches another Jesus, he said, I worry that you might actually allow it. It's, it's 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4, uh, actually 3 and 4. He says, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. Ah, so he goes back to Genesis. We need to learn from that. So your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that comes preaches another Jesus, note that, there's another Jesus, there can be anyway, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit, which you have not received, or another gospel, which you have not accepted, you might well bear with him. Paul says, I'm worried that you might put up with that. And you say, well, I would never accept another Jesus. Okay, here's an important question. Is the Jesus that you believe in Something of your own creation? Is he a Jesus that's okay with you committing little sins now and again? Is he okay with you ignoring what the Bible says? Then you've got a false Jesus. Okay, the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord of our souls. And we are to submit to him. We're to pick up our cross and follow him. You know, some have said, well, you know, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. That's true. But it's also kind of false, because that saying gets used, it's not a religion. Oh, what do you mean? Well, we don't have to really do anything that the Bible says, because we've got this mushy feeling toward Jesus, at least the Jesus of our imagination. 
That's a dangerous teaching to say that. Christianity is a religion, guys, okay? There are laws that Christ gave. Jesus even said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John says, if we love him, we will keep the commandments. This is how we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. So there is an obedience. It flows out of gratitude. We're not trying to earn salvation. But there is an obedience in the Christian life that is necessary. It's an evidence. That's why James could write and say, show me your faith without your works. And I'll show you my faith by my works. True faith changes a person. And we want to make sure that Jesus that we're believing in is the one that's in the Bible. How do you do that? You read the Bible. You prayerfully read the Bible. Because if you're trusting in the Jesus of your imagination, you got a problem. That's that other Jesus, I believe, that Paul warned about. And you might not put up with somebody else coming and preaching a false Jesus. You know, the Mormon Jesus or the Jehovah's Witness Jesus or the Islamic Jesus. That's not Jesus. That's fake. The real Jesus of the Bible is the only one that saves. And it's not the Jesus necessarily of the figment of imagination of a lot of professed Christians. And so we need to make sure that we're believing in the real Jesus. So if you want to keep your eyes open against false philosophies, start with your own. And search your heart and say, Do I, am I really trusting in the Jesus that's revealed in Scripture? And if you're not sure, go back and read the Gospels again. If you're a believer, you're going to love it. Okay, Get to know the Lord. If you can say, well, I, I do read the Bible, and I do love the Jesus of the Bible. Very good. Go back and read it again. Okay, Why? Well, it's like saying, you know, we posted a guard last night. This is Iwo Jima. It's secured. We're fine. We don't need to have guards up every night. Really? What I told you at the beginning of my sermon was not made up. That really happened in history. So you need to have a guard posted at your heart and your mind every day. And it's okay to search things out and say, okay, it, do my beliefs, do my ethics, my morality, my thoughts, do they really line up with what the Bible says about the Lord Jesus Christ in both Testaments? We've got some work in front of us. Keeping your eyes open means you have to be alert. Being alert means you stay in the Word and you listen when it's read or preached. So may God bless us in this and keep us from every false way. And beloved, be at peace also. If you're not sure, say, oh, I, I don't know. Call on the Lord. Call on the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows who he is, okay? He's not confused about who he is. And you say, Lord Jesus Christ, please be my Savior. Help me. Lead me out of every false belief I may have. Just like sometimes ships have to be put in dry dock and the barnacles have to be scraped off the hulls. It's okay to say, Lord, if I've acquired some false beliefs or some bad practices in my Christian life, please get them out of my life. Help me to see what they are so I can confess them and trust your promise to cleanse me of them. May God be pleased to do so. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that it's true. We ask you to seal it to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And we just give this into your care. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. Help us to know you in truth according to your word. And to trust in you with all our hearts. And deliver us from every false way. Hedge us about and keep us safe, Lord, we pray. For we ask this, Father, in Jesus Christ's name.